0: Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. I am joined today. We have a guest today. You guys don't have to hear me uh, blabber on for an hour here. And we have a very esteemed guest. We have Dave Giuliani from our Cleveland Browns, Director of Research and Strategy. Dave, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Kevin. Thank you. Appreciate the time word.
0: Yeah, yeah. We were talking a little bit before the show about how if you're if I'm sure this audience is probably Somewhat familiar with the concept of asymmetric risk here. So uh, I know for people inside the NFL, your rewards for being on a podcast like this, probably pretty low. Uh, your risk a little a little bit higher as you uh, actually I'll, I'll plug our Chris Collinsworth podcast. He, he interviewed Matt Nagy this week and he became the, uh, the story of the day by saying that he, there was no way that he was going to start under any scenario ever uh, uh, Justin Fields week one, of the, that became the story of the day. So we're going to try not to do that to you. We're trying not to make, Dave, the, the the story of the day. And luckily for you, you know, not that many people listen to this podcast other than so, some nerds anyway. But b- before we get into everything with the Browns, some different philosophical questions around analytics, what's going on inside the NFL, uh, wh- why don't you give us your history as far as your, your career path to this point?
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up in New Jersey. I played baseball at Stanford and majored in economics uh, in college, naturally really interested in baseball analytics, but felt, you know, baseball sort of had their analytics revolution with the release of Moneyball. Uh, So I wanted to try and apply that line of thinking to another one of my passions, which was was football. So I got my start in 2011 with the 49ers as a cap and analytics intern. Um, I spent four seasons there with the 49ers. Uh, then one season with the Eagles, uh, and now 2021 is going to be my sixth season with the Browns. Um, and I originally came in 2016 as an analyst. You know, sort of worked very closely with the coaching staff on game management and opponent preparation. Uh, and now in my role now, I more manage the day to day of the research group. Um, still work on some, you know, opponent preparation, game management during the season. Um, but I end up spending a lot of my time on, you know, predictive modeling for the draft and free agency and bigger picture strategy decisions.
0: Now that that's it's good to know for you know people who want to break into uh, analytics with the NFL team that you don't have to go to an Ivy league team. If you go to a, a tiny, you know, obscure school like Stanford, which you, see, <laughs> you could also break it. Uh, so success story there. So I, I appreciate that diversifying. That's really diversifying the, 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 the applicant pool there, but, but seriously, let's, let me get back to where, um, where, where you started off. So you mentioned the cap stuff with the 49ers, then the Eagles, what, what era of Eagles are we talking about here? Uh, is this just the Chip Kelly era? Yeah, Chip Kelly
1: final season with the
0: Eagles. Okay, okay, so that, that's interesting. Did um did you were you did you sleep in a hyperbaric chamber by any chance when you were there or any tracking devices still implanted in you at this point? Uh, I did not,
1: but I was always <laughs> very well hydrated.
0: Okay. That's that's good to know. Yeah. It works for Brady. Um, you know, <laughs> hydration and avocados is really all you, all you need, I think, to keep on playing there. So, so how, like, how formative were those experiences, would you say, versus being, being with, uh, with the Browns? Because I know that obviously there's a hierarchy for for what goes on and there's kind of different things with different teams. Um, yeah. How, how, how would you, I know you don't want to necessarily directly compare exactly what was going on, but obviously things have really matured a lot as analytics th- throughout the, even the last handful of years.
1: Definitely. And, and I think you take you take certain things from all of your experiences. You know, I was really fortunate to work for three organizations that are sort of, you know, known to be at the forefront of analytics and sort of pushing the edge there. Um you know, it was great to get my start with the 49ers, you know, Brian Hampton, Marate were, you know, instrumental in my learning and development in regards to, you know, the salary cap and, um, let's say bigger picture roster strategy, um, sort of once they hired, you know, Kwesi Adolfo who's, you know, now with us at the Browns, um, sort of my analytics interest and my analytics, uh, skill set sort of developed with him, um, and then the time at the Eagles was, was a short time. Um, probably the biggest takeaways there are just you know the interesting dynamics you know within a, a football organization, and probably being a little bit uh, less naive walking into a building about you know what the role is going to be and sort of how all of those things play out. Um, and then with the Browns, you know, starting as an analyst and now working my way up to you know the director and sort of the different um, you know my different roles how different the role is when you are an analyst and, you know, your day-to-day is, you know, working and coding every single day versus, you know, working on bigger picture strategy decisions or, um, you know, strategy meetings, focusing on the output of the presentation of your information um, and just sort of how much more important that becomes as you work your way up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then also um, I know that Howie Roseman at that point in time, maybe wasn't, whatever you just hear things from the outside right so maybe he wasn't like the lead dog there but then also you have Andrew Barry who was with the Browns and then went over to the to the Eagles and now back to the Browns so there's some there's some definite connections Uh, you fit into the connections between all of these different teams and and what they had done Um, and to get into to your history a little bit more here I mean I've been thinking a lot about the game management side of things that that's become a focus. I mean, number one, it's kind of what we can see from the outside better than everything else. I think we often can, can get a list and see who's being hired and who has the biggest analytics departments and things like that. But a lot of this stuff is opaque as far as what is going on behind the scenes or even, you know, how much people are being listened to. We can get a little bit of evidence of maybe a little bit of signal of what's going on as far as what's happening on the field. And I know you've done, that that sort of work in the past. What do you think about that that evolution as far as analytics and within the game management side of things, and you know the, the, the process as that's evolved over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it is something that's easy for for people to understand, and I think people have seen, or coaches in particular have seen how necessary it is. I think when you maybe first get a head coaching job or you're first in charge of game management, it can be difficult to even um, be prepared for all of the situations that you're going to run into and think, you know, I'll figure it out, you know, live in the moment. And really the realization is that, that you're not going to be able to do that, or that is extremely difficult. Maybe there's a few people who can do that, but it's really, really difficult to do live. Um, so, you know, what we focus on doing, you know, with the Browns is just trying to be prepared as much as possible during the week. Um, I think one of the things that's been great here is that we'll get Kevin and all the coordinators together, um, you know, Alex Van Pelt, Joe Woods, Mike Prefer, um, and, you know, and our game management coach, and we'll meet one day late in the week, and we'll go over, you know, all of our game management preparations for the week and for that specific opponent. So any adjustments we want to make based on that specific opponent. Um, and I think that preparation, you know, really limits the need for decisions to be made in the heat of the moment. Because that that was like, probably the biggest difference for like writing about game management theoretically when I was with the 49ers and actually, you know, being on the headset with the Eagles and the, um, and the Browns initially was just how quick those decisions are made and how quickly you need to communicate an idea um, so that the coach can actually implement that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Cause I'm trying to think of which article it was. Maybe, maybe it was an article about the Ravens that came out a year or two ago where, they were interviewing their game management coach and kind of going into the process. And one of the things that really stood out to me is a very smart thing that, that teams are doing, that sounds like something that that you guys may be doing, is you know, you you want to have you want to have those discussions beforehand so that in the moment, if there is a bias, let's say, towards being more conservative, or if maybe there's a bias towards the situational factors of what may be going on and and obviously timing like you don't want to burn timeouts in in these situations that by playing through exact scenarios getting coaches to you know, not commit, but getting them prepared and used to saying, we're going to do this X, X situation. Then when X situation comes up, it's that much easier to, to get the process to work out the, as the way it was intended than it would be if you're starting from square one and you're just assuming that giving the information is going to lead to X decision.
1: Yeah. And, and, and not only that, though, I, I also think it makes it easier for the coach to, you know, have a starting point and then use his intuition or use his experience to, to move off of that starting point rather than like trying to get both of those inputs at the same time and, you know, mesh them together to make a decision, you know, you actually, Hey, here was our input. And maybe this is your input. We know that at the start and then, you know, during the game, he can take into account the specific situation we're in or whatever specific context he wants to, you know, um, incorporate into his decision. Right. Right. Well, that's interesting because, okay, this is a,
0: like what the coach adds to these decisions. Again, this is going to be simplistic from the st- the stake of this is what we see from the outside. So of course there is a lot of focus on these things like fourth down decisions, maybe two point decisions. I know it's from, from the inside you're probably looking at if people arguing over these things and like, you know, the world's bigger than that, but sorry, we have a small world, you know, we, we, we don't have, we don't have a lot, but our spreadsheets to, 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 to go on. But in those sorts of circumstances, I mean, there is research, and I've I've had discussions with some other people in game management roles. So there there's research in the past is talking about this kind of like model aversion that some people have, right? And as explicit as you want to make something like a fourth down model, it's still going to be somewhat opaque, right? Like how do you get X win percentage, uh, win probability from here versus there, even if you're very clear and delineated on what the parameters are. Even if you say, oh, we're, we have the exact down and distance. We know we have the exact time that's going in. Maybe you even have tracking data, which shows if it's fourth and an inch versus fourth and three feet, how that affects things. So even if you build all those things in, End, you're still putting things into a box and it's coming out with a number at the end. So there still is an element of faith that comes into play there. Now, traditionally, if a model is well built, allowing people to use their intuition, use their expertise to adjust off of that. I mean, most research says that's you get poorer results than than, than if you don't do it. But there are people who swear up and down, even who are like, analytics, smart people that the coaches are adding to those, to those decisions. So you hear the classic thing of, you know, the analytics can't tell us that, you know, the, our right guard is getting his ass kicked all, all gay bloggers. Like that, that's a kind of where the classic for things. What do you think about that, that give and take between model and coaching input?
1: I mean, I, I think there are some real examples where, you know, coaching intuition is obvious is, is going to be, is obviously going to help the, um, the decision that's made in real time. Injuries are like a really exist easy example to point to, right? Something has changed fundamentally um, since when the model was actually, when the prediction or the recommendation, you know, um, was run at the time. So I think that's a, that's a really easy, obvious one. Um, and I think another way to look at it is just to view all the decisions over the course of the year. And if you're only making a correction in one direction, then maybe that, that's, that's an issue. So if you're only going with the conservative decision every time or, you're updating from the model, like just in one direction over the course of an entire season. I think that's probably an issue, but if you're making small corrections on both sides, I think that's probably a little bit easier to accept and, and potentially, you know, would actually improve outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are, are you getting enough feedback during the course of a
1: season to, to even make those assessments? I think so. I mean, you have enough. You have a lot of. We make a lot of recommendations, and you know, we review those recommendations. Um, and so you can see if if you know every recommendation is in the conservative uh, direction. That right. you know, hey, may- maybe we need to tweak this a little bit more, or, or maybe talk about why all the direction or all the you know changes are made in in one direction or one area.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. I mean, I think that's another thing that's been plotted out by. Uh, Ben Baldwin and some others with this fourth down bot is it shows that at least you would think there would be like a distribution towards aggressiveness. I mean, if you're making a one-off intuition slash knowledge decision, there would be like a distribution around the recommended outcome, but normally it skews over to one side. So I think that is interesting and and getting that that feedback helps. Um, But, you know, how much of it is really like I'm always wondering about the game prep beforehand versus in-game decision, because there's always there's always this thing about like Madden players are they make great decisions because they just have reps of like in-game decisions sort of things. Do you think? I don't know. Is that ever an issue of of like being
1: able to replicate what a real in-game in-game decision looks like? Um, I think that can be difficult, but I think ultimately, you know whoever's making the decision, you hope you, you give them a, a, a good enough starting point and you hope that they're not just updating or they're not just making uh, adjustments to the recommendation uh, because they feel a certain way emotionally that they're only actually doing that when they have new information or, or different information. Um, so I think a lot of that is just the decision maker you know, having confidence in you know whatever the actual analysis or the output or the recommendation is um, and the more confidence that he has on that, the less he might feel like he needs to sort of update or to to move from the original recommendation. Um, and, and I think sometimes the lack of reps can go the other way. Like if you're, you know, if you have a lack of reps and maybe you're less confident in, um, you know, your intuition playing a bigger piece of it, you might just go with the recommendation more often. So I, I think it can, you know, the the lack of the reps or experience can sort of go both ways there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Now, uh, you know, we don't want to get into like specific coaches, but communication is always a big focus that we talk about. Um, obviously, there are going to be some, no matter who you're communicating with, there are going to be some people who are maybe more receptive just based upon their their background or their knowledge in a certain situation or their experience having done it before the people are going to be less receptive. Like how much do you think, contr- like how much control and how much influence do you think you can have with How you specify how things are communicated, maybe how you deal with, with different, the actual decision makers versus is it, is it more of like, you know, it's a roll of the dice and whoever that coach ends up being is going to be the the biggest impact on everything. And you really don't have as much of an ability to like communicate your way past objections as you might, as people might think you have.
1: I mean, I do think we, you know, the analyst does have th- their communication skills and their method of communication does have an impact on, you know, how likely you are to, to get a coach to, to follow a recommendation. You know, I can only, I'll speak to, you know, where we are now. And I think we're at a, a really good spot when it comes to implementation and communication. Um, I think Kevin and the entire staff are really open and transparent in everything they do. And that makes it a lot easier for us to see, you know, why they make certain decisions because it is so transparent. Um, and it's really helpful that they actually come and seek out our thoughts around game management or, or other aspects of gameplay. So that makes the lines of communication really open, makes it really easy to, to present analysis to them. So I think that's certainly helpful when you actually have many opportunities to do that versus maybe just a couple times a year. Um, and it's nice because, you know, they don't just take the recommendation as facts and say, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do. They, they really do try to mesh it together with their intuition or maybe what they're seeing on film. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is definitely an influence there. I think the analyst has an influence, but obviously, you know, the culture of the entire building and, and the head coach's inclination towards maybe listening to that, um, to our analysis has a big impact as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this because there's kind of this feeling of like how much confidence you should have in a recommendation. I mean, this is something that comes up a lot with with feedback that at least publicly people will get when they say this was X was the right decision. And it's said in a way where you can't really communicate, you know, all the different uh potential flaws in the thinking, all the different scenarios, how things may change, you know, the the quality of the inputs, you're only as good as the quality of the inputs that you're coming all those sorts of things. But if you're, you know, if you're, if you're not displaying some confidence, at least in what you're saying, then like, who's going to follow you. Right. Like, so like, I always wonder about that, that dynamic because I feel like there can be a harm to not just dis- not having enough confidence in there, but at the same time, if you show a, a ton of confidence and then you come back later and you say, Oh, you know what? Like maybe I was, maybe that was kind of wrong what I was saying before. Yeah. And, and this is something else. Then you're kind of shot out of the water there. So how do you, how do you think about that? Um, is it just trying to be as open and honest and accurate as possible? Or is there a time where you say, um, you know, we don't want to get too much into the weeds because it can actually hurt decision-making.
1: Um, I, You know, I, I, it's always a fine line. You have to walk as far as being confident in your work, but then also recognizing the uncertainty sort of inherent in football analysis. Um, I think, like you said, if you can be as open as possible, if you can say, hey, you know, option A, the difference between option A and option B is, you know, 1% and win probability. That's within the error bars of, you know, our model. So, you know, it's a little bit of a toss up. We'd lean this way, but, you know, we don't feel strongly about this recommendation versus something where it's option A, option B, and, you know, this gap is 10%. And, you know, it, it would take a lot of additional context or a lot of additional circumstances for us to feel like this isn't the correct decision. Um, and I think if you were telling that to someone who can actually interpret that and take that as like, okay, you know, this isn't necessarily the the final answer, but, you know, they feel a lot more, a lot more strongly about, you know, one decision or one, um, you know, one decision versus another, I think that's, uh, that's important, but it, it is difficult to walk that line um, particularly as we're getting access to to new and different data and maybe how, you know, incorporating player tracking data could change the the results of some of our, our analysis or previous analysis.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then it, also in the, this communication bucket, we'll say, what about just football knowledge now for, I think it's fair to say that, it's, it's it's more difficult, in a way, to get someone to a baseline of let's say, computer programming and maybe statistical knowledge and things like that than it is to get someone to a baseline of football knowledge. If only because there are so many resources right available, um, there's so many people who have played football, whether it in the professional level, the college level, and so on. So there's like a huge amount of people, but there isn't probably as much of a of that grouping that has the, some of the, the analytical skills that come into it, but it can't just be one or the other. Right. So I'm wondering like how important for the, just the sake of buy-in is, you know, really ramping up that, that football knowledge that, that you have um, versus, you know, saying we're going to stick to what we do well. And then we're going to, we're really just going to let the football guys to to figure out how they
1: want to interpret it. Yeah. I mean, You know, obviously the technical skills are the most difficult thing to find when we're looking at candidates, but I do think it's extremely important to be continuously developing those, those football knowledge, you know, um, you know, first it actually improves the analysis. So, you know, making sure you're actually taking into account the proper context, you know, any potential selection bias might be, you know, the most important part of doing like actual high quality football analysis since, you know, football is, is fraught with those issues. Um, second it actually really helps to get buy in when you're you know presenting the results of, of that analysis to a decision maker um, you can imagine in their shoes it takes a, a lot of trust to make a decision based on the work that someone else has done particularly if it goes against you know your intuition um, so you have to you know to gain that confidence and that trust you have to show the decision maker that you've really carefully considered you know all of the factors that could potentially influence the result of your analysis, not necessarily that it actually made it into the final model that, you know, the right guard isn't playing well, but that you have you've taken certain things or various issues into a, into account and that, you know, they don't actually result uh, affect the results of your analysis. Uh, and then the last piece is that it makes communication just so much easier, you know, knowing it's not just like knowing the X's and O's, but just even having a shared vocabulary. So you can clearly communicate. Um, you know, you can say 11 personnel, everyone's going to know three wide receivers, one, one running back, one tight end, but you have to take the next step and, you know, use the terminology that the coaching staff uses. Um, one really important example of that, probably one of the few examples, specific examples I can share is, um, <laughs> right, I'll, I'll clip this off and, and we're <laughs> yeah. <ready>. go ahead, <laughs> is, is just, uh, you know, pressure. Um, so, you know, pressure is a term that can sometimes actually get lost in translation, you know, most of the analysts I've been around use the term pressure when we're trying to describe, you know, when a quarterback's hurried or is under duress. Um, but a lot of coaches I've been around have actually used pressure um, fairly interchangeably with, you know, blitz or that the defense is bringing an additional pass rusher. Um, so if I'm giving a presentation or handing out the results of my analysis, you know, and I'm saying you know the opposing quarterback struggles versus pressure, you know, that to me, that can mean, you know, he, he does poorly when he's hurried to them. It could mean he does poorly when he's blitz. So you know, it actually, it actually does, uh, is like pretty important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And even, I mean, just even thinking of that makes me think that, you know, like part of pressure probably should be, and even in, even in our analysis, how we look at it probably should be looking more at, um, yeah. When additional pressure is being brought just because, like it is different, right? It's not a clean pocket in the same way that a clean pocket would be if you're, if you're not bringing pressure. So yeah, I mean, it's just little, little tidbits like that obviously give you the the info that you need to do well. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I ask is that the big data bowl. So the big data bowl is the NFL puts on for those who don't know, the NFL puts on a yearly um, competition, I guess you could, you could say uh, where they're giving out data a subset of data and then people build analysis on this that's something that michael lopez who's a friend of the show who's uh who's at the nfl <laughs> is at the nfl office there has implemented and the winner of i guess it was the 2020 data no 19. 2020 yeah 2020 data bowl which was based which was uh running back um estimating running back like the, the yardage gained Um, the expected yardage gain based upon player positioning. The guys who won that were these two, at least one German guy or or European guy. I I get them confused. Um, and they they didn't even know what football was. (laughs) They were like, they were like, uh, first we had to learn, like, who are these people, this and that, but they really knew that modeling component of it, right? So I know that you have done some, some recruiting. I mean, you have a couple of different people there who are now working with the Browns who came out of the, the big data bowl. So I'm wondering, like, that's an interesting question. I think when, when you're looking at even recruiting, as you're saying, the technical skills versus the football side of things, um, there are people who can win competitions. Now that may not be that helpful in the football realm, but there are people who can win competitions and don't know anything about football and never even watched football before.
1: Yeah. I guess I'm less concerned with like the initial football knowledge and more concerned yeah. with the actual passion for football and football right, analytics. Okay. I mean, it takes a certain type of person to work the hours that we work and put, you know, this much <laughs> into it. Particularly when, you know, maybe you don't know how much your actual involvement is, or, um, you know, exactly how much you influence decisions. Certainly, it's been that way historically. Maybe not as much now, but, um, it, 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 yeah, it takes a certain mindset or certain level of passion uh, that that might not even be logical, so irrational. So, <laughs> I think that's yeah, that's a lot. I think <laughs> I think coaching
0: comes in. most. Coaches <laughs> fall into that category, also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. And one other thing about communication: um, Do you need to make appearances in the weight room to to get that communication up, just to show them that you know, hey, I'm I'm not just you know pushing that mouse around all day
1: long. I can also throw these weights around the room if it need be. No, no, definitely, definitely don't need to do that. I mean, maybe <laughs> if you're out there putting up 235 on the bench ten times, maybe that, uh, maybe oh, yeah. that uh, ups I guess your doesn't... your street cred, but. I guess that probably does
0: open you up to additional mockery that may not may not be uh, may not be necessary. Um, okay, so g- going a little bit back into the the big data bowl stuff because I wanted to ask you about that. Like, I feel like okay, initially this is just from an outside observer. Initially, when it came to recruiting and these different. Uh, Areas there. I think the Browns are also infamous for the fact that, like, everyone went to Harvard at one point in time that that ends up being there or is an Ivy League person. And obviously, these are how these networks form. I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot when it comes to coaching about, you know, coaches' sons come in, people that they knew, you recruit from people, you know, this and that. So has the big data Bowl changed that dynamic at least in recruiting? Because I've seen so many people get hired out of there where I'm not sure any of these people would have really gotten on the radar. I mean, maybe as part of the recruitment process, it would have been possible, but this is really an open competition. So what do you think about that and how that's changed the dynamics of recruiting?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think the number one thing someone can do to get our attention is to do great work in the public space. Right. Um, you know, I think big data bull does a great job of giving analysts that opportunity Particularly the opportunity to showcase the more showcase the more advanced technical skill set that it is difficult to find, um, and then apply that skill set to actually answering football questions. Uh, so I don't think it necessarily has to be with player tracking data. Like I think everyone who wants to work in football analytics should have a pet project that they're working on, whether it's working with the play-by-play data, whatever that is. Um, and, and but I will say specifically, you know, having such a spotlight on the big data bowl and having so many people enter and getting to see. Um, So many qualified candidates really does help broaden our pool um, because we can evaluate them more off of their work product than, you know, just their educational background. So I do agree that that helps there. Um, And I also think it helps candidates, you know, come into the role more prepared to hit the ground running once they start working for us or once they start working for a team because they've already, you know, had some experience working with football data.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, I I know the, the work that's being done with the uh, the tracking, you know, I don't want to get into any, any top secret. Uh, I don't want like Edward Snowden, you guys or something like that and trying to figure out what's what's going on with that data. But I thought it was interesting that a colleague of yours, uh, Andrew Healy, who also who's been working there for, for a while, he was part of a panel that I was also on. And the question that was posed and maybe maybe you could also give me your, your opinion on this. I thought his answer was interesting where it was said, I believe it was if you have a month to look through a data set and then come with some sort of insight that you wanted to present to, I think it was to coaches, but let's say coaches, whoever front opposites, it doesn't really matter that much. Would you rather look through, I think the choices were like an NFL scraper or NFL faster, like this public data set that you can have there of everything uh, PFF data a, or tracking data, like which one of these ones would you want to look through? And, and, you know, not just pumping up, the company here, but uh but he said he said we'd rather have PFF data. And what an interesting thing as a side that he said was, even if he had a year, he might rather have PFF data, which I thought was was kind of interesting. So I'm kind of wondering like about the the data that you have there and with with the tracking. um I mean, I know it's where the NFL is going, but I'm always trying to get an idea of like. Are er, I mean, and it's also this is the big this is the big data bowl sort of thing there. So I, I'm trying to figure out like how you think about data sources that let's just assume maybe they don't necessarily come with ready readily um, readily available insight. You know, tomorrow if you look at them, but it's more of an, an investment sort of thing. How, how do you think about like immediate impact of the analysis that you're doing versus the long term and where things may go?
1: Um. Well, one, I'll never disagree with Andrew Healy, so that that, that that's my starting point. That's uh, okay. his his base rates of of being correct are extremely high, so I'm not going to use any of my intuition to to move <laughs> off of uh, his answer already. But um, yeah, I think it's difficult. I think not only is the analysis uh, difficult, but then it's actually difficult to communicate those insights because it it is so um, you know working with that data is abstract. I mean, I think it takes time even to make visualizations or try to, you know, overlay the film into whatever, you know, the results of your analysis are to get that buy-in. So I think that's, you know, from an actual implementation standpoint, I think that's the biggest challenge Um, in addition to just the difficulty and and run times of of working with large data sets. So, yeah, I I think it's, I, I think certainly if you only had a month, you would go with, you know, something that's, you know, a little bit easier to work with and maybe a less, uh, difficult to communicate the results of whatever analysis you're trying to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess this, this kind of makes me think of another thing where I was thinking about the, the, the tracking data in a way, like maybe building something that's going to say to a coach, like, Hey, like I'm going to redesign the way you think about some fundamental concept is, is kind of out there, but maybe saying to them, Hey, we can track and you know some sort of tedious task that you're doing, like looking at film all the time. We can maybe make that a little bit easier in order to to do something like that. So, how does that fall into like the category? How much of the how much of it is like we want to you know revolutionize? We want to destroy football, of course, because we <laughs> So, how much is we want to destroy football versus we want to make it easier for the coaches to protect football against against the nerds by just giving them like a, easier
1: an easier time of being able to do things. No, I think those are the two things we're always aiming for. Um, I think there's one, you know, a lot of times we've called it the killer app or having something in mind where you're just going to absolutely floor people or, or revolutionize the game. Um, and, you know, you'll learn a bunch of things on the way uh, to, that, to that destination. But I think, you know, sort of some of the low-hanging fruit is, you know, automating things for the coaching staff that is tedious and that takes up their week, particularly in season where just, the, you know, some of these guys are here till 2, 3 a.m., Um, you know, just trying to get things done on Monday and Tuesday so that we can actually install it and teach it to the players by the time Sunday comes around. So, you know, and I think that really, you know, helps get a lot of buy-in. You know, if you're going to help somebody with something small, they're going to be a little bit, it develops a relationship and they're going to be a little bit more trusting or maybe, um, you know, be interested in the bigger project or the the bigger piece of analysis where, you know, if you are going to do something revolutionary, that it probably does take a good amount of trust um, and I think that's one way to help develop that is to, to you know, go after some of the low hanging fruit.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think it probably makes sense even from the perspective of like getting some trust mm-hmm. in the data is actually like correct sometimes, <laughs> sometimes like, yeah. you know, that, that maybe if it's, if it's replicating what they're, what they're also doing, right. Rather than coming up with something that they don't have, like something to even check it again. So it probably helps even build some, some trust in, in the data, for, for, for what they're, for what they're doing. And I think that's, that's interesting. Um, what a question that I, that I had. So I, I was doing a, just, you know, you, we, we I run out of ideas here during the summer. So one was I was rating NFL front offices and part of the input into that was, like I said, we don't really know that much beyond what's going on in the field was just looking at, you know, how many people are they hiring? Are they hiring people that maybe have a uh, more of a technical background who can deal with some of this data, um, but one of the, the feedback that I got on that, which I thought was interesting was, you know, if you're just going to go based upon this team has five people in their list, uh, this team has two people on their list, how do you know what's actually being imp- implemented or how do you know that it's even working? Maybe it's even helping what they're doing. So I guess that kind of goes a little bit into the feedback that we talked about with these fourth down decisions. Um, how do you know things <laughs> things are things are working or things are even helping? Or do you have to have just a factor of trust that if you have the right
1: process, it's going to help with the right results. Yeah. I mean, that is number one is like, you, you have to have a good process. And I think from that process, you hope that, you know, it does lead to good results. Um, I think if you were gonna systematically try to isolate the impact of like any one department's effect on winning and like a complex system, like <laughs> like a football organization <laughs> with all these interactions, like that, that's, a, that's an impossible task. Um, yeah, I, I know from our perspective, as far as like how we try to judge our results or our impact, you know, we we, we sort of reject the narrative that like we're going to come up with this perfect model or magic formula that's going to be 100% correct or 100% right all the time. Um, and really, I think Paul stated this a lot. Like, I think the focus is more on, you know, creating better frameworks for making decisions under uncertainty. Um, and that's sort of a broad term, but, you know. I think sometimes that comes through in the use of data, or it comes through in the use of our models or unique metrics that we might create. Um, but other times, it's really as simple as outlining a process, you know, for making decisions, and then just making sure that we're actually adhering to that process along the way. Um, so I think that's more of how we look at things, and you know, it's a bunch of small decisions that um, hopefully add up over time to wins, and you actually see that, in, you know, in the end. But it's certainly not a, a quick, fi- quick fix or, you know, do these one, two, three things. And all of a sudden you're going to go from a, a six win team to a 12 win team. It's really, you know, it takes time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's really easy, no matter who's making any decision to say like when oh. it goes right, you're like, boom, did it, did it, that's me <laughs> hit that one. And then when it goes wrong, you're like, well, but it was, the process was good. So, you know, you'll be screaming like the process as you, as you float away to see, but, um, but and it's you know, like the NFL it's there's so much um, noise I would say because of the fact that every game is like life or death basically for, for an NFL team uh, there's so much time between the games to overanalyze and to look at look at everything like that. So like, there's always this focus of, you don't want that that noise to affect everything you're doing, but you don't want to also block, block out that sort of noise. So yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to get like an idea of you know, like the, 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 the influence on that, on that feedback process. Uh, how, much, how much, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's tough to say, right? I, you're, you're discussing a little bit of, of what's going on there, but I'm always trying to get an idea of whether, you know, how, the pressure from, from the results and how that influences
1: the feedback process essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess one difference between, you know, maybe the public's perception, our internal perception is that, you know, we have an entire draft board to evaluate, right. We have right. an entire draft class of predictions to evaluate versus the seven players we pick. So there's a lot more randomness in those, you know, seven to 10 players than this, you know, when we actually get to evaluate a draft class or 10 draft classes um, and see, a, Hey, you know, this is how we've done over time. Maybe we got lucky or unlucky with the specific players we actually picked, but, um, you know, to some degree we do have that larger sample size that, you know, can hopefully instill some confidence, you know, within the organization, but that's obviously something that, you know, the public doesn't get to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. Well, before we, we wrap up again, I appreciate your time. You got, you got any stories for me? Can I get something? Can I, mm, can, I, can, I can I, get some good stuff here? Maybe, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You got you to throw anyone under the bus. This is your last chance. So anyone throw anyone under the bus
1: here before, before we go. Uh, I'll go with the funny story. uh, Maybe not necessarily thrown among the bus, but like a a definitely a a interesting initial interaction. Um, So I'll go back to my first season with the Browns in 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first preseason game on the headset. Uh, It's about 20 minutes before kickoff, so all the you know coaches that were on the field come up. Uh, I've only been an employee for a few weeks. Uh, My meeting. What's what's the what's the anxiety nervous level at this for for this for this time right here Um, out of ten. It's pretty high. Let's say an eight, I'd say the first time I did it in 2015 with the Eagles, it was at a 10, um, <laughs> but sort of after doing it for a season, it, it wasn't as bad. Um, certainly a little bit higher with a, with a new team, new coach, new organization, but right. Um, so I'm in there, obviously a little nervous. Um, haven't really met with most of the coaching staff, really. Most of my conversations at that point had just been, you know, with the head coach. Um, and so, you know, I'm standing behind our wide receiver coach and that's where I'm going to be um, on the headset during the game. And that's Al Saunders. So, you know, an absolute coaching legend. Right. And I'm just here standing behind him, trying not to mess up anything up. So, so about five minutes before kickoff, you know, Al turns to me and he says, you know, probably the first time we, we spoke, um, Hey, can you grab me a Coke? <laughs> and so I was like, Oh yeah, sure. No problem. And then I realized that, you know, he just sees me standing around here. Doesn't, you know, know that I actually have a role on game day and thinks I'm actually part of the video team, you know, maybe trying to help with like screenshots or the tablet they're working with. So, you know, I go, I grab a soda. Um, and and then, you know, five minutes later the game starts, you know, head coach comes on the headset and asks, you know, Hey Dave, you on here. Do you have me? I respond like, yeah, coach, I'm here. I can hear you. And he just turns around and looks at me with this confused look on his face. Like what the heck is this guy doing on the headset? Um, (laughs) so yeah, that was my first, you know, interaction with like an absolute coaching legend and, um, well, maybe that didn't go as a plan. Like he was actually really great, and um, you know, one of the things I'll never forget that he used to do. He would pop in. We had a they had their run game meetings on either Monday night or Tuesday morning, and he'd always pop into the offensive meeting room and he'd say, "Hey, have you guys figured out how to uh, how to gain three yards yet?" And I was obviously, <laughs> you know, you know, I thought he was hilarious, and I'm gonna love him for that comment alone. So, um, yeah, my my interactions with Al Saunders were, were pretty unforgettable.
0: That uh, sounds pretty fun. I mean, I, I thought the story was going to end with you were just getting cokes for the entire season for <laughs> no. for the entire coaching staff. And eventually you couldn't say it. That would be me. Like I would just never say anything and I'd just be getting cokes and I'd just be doing it. And I'd have to like force someone else to to do it. I'd have to like, say, hey, intern, like we need to hire someone so that I can give off this task to someone else. So it's good. It's good that you moved up in the organization uh part part of the job responsibilities any of those you want to work in the nfl it's not only about analytics it's about uh refreshments it's about about serving (laughs) refreshments so well thanks thanks Dave, for that story thanks for your time as i mentioned i know you guys are super busy and uh you know these these could be fun to have have a good conversation so i i appreciate that uh everyone follow the browns this season our browns as i've said uh we'll we'll see i'm giving entire credit to the turnaround and the the bump last season and if there's any regression this season then obviously it's the fault of some new coach or someone else who comes in there so thanks so much man and to everyone listening go ahead tune in next week i'll get back to the business of the nfl and hopefully we'll get some more interviews this summer thanks again